Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Hello, it's me, Jen. Thank you so much to everyone who has listened to Living While Feminist. This is the last episode in season one, and we'll be back in the new year with some new feminist conversations. Please remember that you can rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And the Living While Feminist book is out in good bookstores and is an excellent Christmas gift. Chat to you in the new year. Just a note that today's episode deals with some difficult topics, so please do take care of yourselves while you're listening. Helen Moffat is an author, editor, academic and activist. Her publications include university textbooks, a treasure of landscape writings, lovely beyond any singing, a cricket book with the late Bob Wilmer and Tim Noakes, an animal charity anthology called Stray with Diane Auerbach, and the Girl Walks In erotica series with Sarah Lotz and Paige Nick. She has also published two poetry collections, Strange Fruit and Prunings, with the latter winning the 2017 Sala Prize for Poetry. She has edited the last three short story day Africa anthologies, Migrations, ID, and Hotel Africa. She's also written a memoir of Rape Crisis and two Green Hand books, 101 Water Wise Ways and Wise About Waste, 150 Plus Ways to Help Save the Planet. Her first novel, Charlotte, a Pride and Prejudice sequel, was published by Bonnier in the UK in 2020. Helen's piece in Living While Feminist is titled Crones and Witches, This Invisible Body, and it focuses on how the discovery of feminist language assisted her in understanding her experiences with the sexual and reproductive health medical community, and how feminist silences around infertility and early menopause still remain. She says in her piece, Feminism gave me a way through the mess on every level. All through my 20s, it provided a life jacket, a Kevlar vest, weapons and warm blankets as I battled sexual violence, career-altering workplace sexual harassment, overt discrimination and sexism in medical settings. It legitimized my anger, gave me words and energy, fueled me. Feminism did not just give me a map for my life, it saved my life too. So today I'll be talking to Helen about the ways that feminism can save your life, what it means to recognize medical misogyny, and some positive ideas of what a modern-day witch looked like. Welcome, Helen. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me on this podcast. Pleasure. So nice to be talking to you. And so you begin your piece by saying, feminism, to begin with a ridiculously sweeping generalization, has not been kind to older women. And you go on to give some examples of where there are some significant gaps in feminist writing, um, hysterectomy, infertility, miscarriage, stillbirth, PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, menopause, and in your terms, the sheer brute biology of the aging woman's body. Can you explain why you thought it was important to talk about sexual and reproductive health from a feminist perspective for this collection? I think my first 
first impulse was probably a rather selfish and whiny one. Um, it was that dreadful kind of toddler, well, what about me um, impulse. But at the same time, I felt a different kind of an obligation and an interest and a pleasure in exploring issues that were so profoundly around issues of gender and biology and those continuums. And I thought, I can't call myself a feminist and complain and moan about the fact that there's no feminist writing on infertility, for example. I mean, literally, there is almost nothing. Um, and I can't just sit there sulking in the sandpit. Um, I am a feminist. I am a writer. I am a commentator. Why don't I tackle this topic? And then I realized that um, nothing is perfect. Um, feminisms are multiple. Feminism, and I'm so glad that you chose that piece to read that you did at the introduction, because it really did save my life. It does save my life. It will continue to save my life in an, you know, on an ongoing basis. But um, feminism is also a broken, fragmented, sometimes squabbling, sometimes stuck. Um, it's not necessarily even-handed. It is not some sort of utopian heaven of perfect equality. Um, and it doesn't actually help to present feminism as that sort of perfect church into which we can all go and find um, equal equality, as it were, which is, I think, what that whataboutery was about. It was like, well, I've done my time, you know, sort of on, rep you know, reproduction and women's health rights. You know, why is nobody interested in polycystic ovarian syndrome from a feminist perspective? You know, I can read about medical misogyny. There was masses of stuff about that. I could read about sort of um, difficulties with accessing um, safe termination of pregnancy. I could read about difficulties with access to contraception. I could march on the streets for all of those. But um, as, as I said at the very beginning of my essay, there were gaps, fissures, contradictions, holes. And... Um, so I suppose I felt both that it would be that, you know, so this makes me sound like a terrible goody two-shoes, but I thought I had an obligation to fill in some of those gaps, but I also thought it would be fun. And I'm grateful to you and to the project for giving me the opportunity to do that. And in fact, generally, I find that the entire, the whole, as you know, uh, feminism um, is and living while feminist projects have been for me wonderful ways to interact with younger feminists, given that I'm now sort of starting to fall into what you might call the veteran category. For many of us, there's the assumption that like you'll do feminism and you will solve a problem and then it will be finished and no one will have to talk about it for a long time. But that's really not the reality. I think when you're dealing with systemic injustice and the deliberate system that aims to exclude certain people, there's benefit for people keeping things the same. So... I wanted to touch on something that you said around the literature around medical misogyny being so extensive and, and literature around access being really extensive, but then about actual health conditions, sort of like PCOS and 
there was nothing. So in the piece, you talk about your long and undiagnosed polycystic ovarian syndrome. So just for anyone listening who doesn't know what that is, um, I got this definition that I'm about to give you now from Dr. Tlaling Mofokeng's book, A Guide to Sexual Health and Pleasure. And she says, PCOS is a complex hormonal disorder manifesting as tiny cysts inside the ovaries. Some women may develop a few cysts, while others may have several large cysts. PCOS can have reproductive and metabolic effects, and it's a common gynecological problem. One out of 10 women have it. You describe some of the the physical symptoms and emotional symptoms of of PCOS, um, and also that at times you weren't believed, for example, by your school teacher who demanded to know know, your sick note and and whether it was real, and that basically the medical response to you was to sort of take hormones and live with it. But it was only when you discovered feminist writing that you realized you were experiencing medical misogyny. So can you tell me a little bit what, about what you mean by the term medical misogyny and how things changed when you sought advice from a female gynecologist? Medical misogyny, well, it, it's, it's a very, very broad topic. But I think one of the illusions we have is that um, doctors are neutral. You know that they are um, that they hold all of this information. That they're trained scientists. That they work on evidence-based um, research, and that they they don't take sides. Their personal opinions are not supposed to affect them. Which, if you think about it, is insanely naive. Um, medicine is like absolutely every other aspect of our lives absolutely marinated in not just sexism but racism uh i mean there's been such there's been all that really interesting research coming out of the us and the uk i hate to think what it's like here about how if you are black and you present in an emergency room you're less likely to get painkillers we're looking at the terrifying maternal mortality rates for black women in countries that are supposed to have developed and sophisticated medical backup systems. So to assume that doctors um, are somehow, you know, like gods on the amount of, on the mountains of Olympus, sort of down sort of with an equal fairness, equal gaze on all of us is just plain naive. Doctors can be racist, sexist, homophobic, classist, um, And the awful thing is that because they're at that intersection where they're treating our physical and our frail bodies, they can literally cost us our lives. Um, You know, I'm I'm of an age that I remember people at the beginning of the HIV AIDS pandemic who died because of the ignorance of their doctors. Um, They didn't need to die. You know, I knew young men who died needlessly because of genuine prejudices that their doctors held. Um, I I lost one friend to cancer because every single time he presented at his doctor, his doctor said, oh, you must have AIDS. Here's an, you know, go have an AIDS test. And wouldn't take his symptoms seriously until he was at stage four and terminal. You know, his weight loss and all these sorts of things, oh, it must be AIDS. So, I don't know why I was surprised when I started being sent to um, doctors as a teenager, when I first started presenting with symptoms of PCOS, what we 
which I was told, um, I was literally told you will grow out of this marriage and babies will fix this. We are talking a long time ago and medicine has changed a great deal. But um, it was naive of me to assume that I would get fair treatment. And this goes on and on and on. I was on Facebook this morning. I have a friend who um, works as a gender-based violence advocate in one of the Midwest's biggest um, domestic violence intervention shelters. She is, in other words, this is an extremely assertive woman, educated, privileged, you name it. She went to hospital with diverticulitis. And the resident who saw her said, you're probably just having a really bad period. And this is 2020. Women who go in, and I mean, women who go in with present with serious, serious medical conditions in serious pain are still being told, you're probably just having um, a bad period cramp. So this is something that we have to take on. So when we're actually fighting for the health of our bodies, um, we have to, we know, we, we not only have to be advocates for the symptoms we're experiencing and the conditions we're trying to manage, we actually have to be advocates um, against ableism, against genuine misogyny. Um, there are still healthcare providers and um, teenagers in rural clinics encounter them all the time in this country who are truly moralistic, who, for example, will tell a terrified 17-year-old that she can't have an abortion because it's wrong, or she can't have, um, she can't go on the injection or the pill because that's wicked. Um, you're still having um, people shamed um, because they are women. And because they want to do things like, they want to do wicked things like dare to experience sexual pleasure or strengthen a relationship. And I mean, I'm sure people like uh, uh, Dr. T um, speak about this a great deal in their book, but um, it's, it's all pervasive, it's real, it's still a thing. And um, I wanted to address that simply because the other thing, um, as I say right at the beginning of that essay, is that um, I've discovered that ageism becomes more and more and more of a factor in your feminist journey, that increasingly you're likely to be patronized, um, you're likely to be brushed aside. You have to have learnt, like me, to have a very loud voice. You've had to learn how to be very assertive, very voluble, and you have to get more assertive. You have to get more voluble. You have to be more pushy. I don't even like using that word because, you know, pushy, you know, only women are pushy, men are forceful. Um, but the older I get, the more I have to insist on um, decent treatment. And um, that's like everything else. It's a gendered issue. When I was think, uh, listening to you now, I was thinking about how in the olden days, or in the olden days, in the 50s, there was the, or the, you would tell a woman that she was being hysterical, and it was thought that only women could be hysterical because actually hysteria was linked to the womb, which I think is in fact the root of the the, the word, and um, and how 
even those of us who feel comfortable standing up for ourselves and others most of the time, if you're in a place of fear when you go to a medical establishment, it's really hard to do that because you do hand over some of your power to the supposed expert to assist you. And as you point out, many people are denied the treatment that they need for those exact reasons, because of medical misogyny, because of medical racism. I was speaking to someone the other day about fat phobia and how doctors treat them terribly because they assume, you know, all of the problematic assumptions about fat people. Um, and that this really actually at the end of the day affects your constitutional right to health. So just for anybody listening who isn't aware, in our constitution in South Africa, you have the legal right to access sexual and reproductive health and to make decisions about how you pursue that. Um, you are legally entitled to an abortion under limited conditions up to 12 weeks with no questions asked. Thereafter, you know, their medical intervention is required. But just that, that these continual human rights denials are often faced by women, by minority groups, by people with disabilities. I do think it's very sad that in 2020, we do have to have a loud voice in order to get basic um, treatment. I wanted to ask you as well about some of the feminist literature. I mean, you're obviously very well read and you speak a lot about feminist literature in your piece, but you also speak about some of the silences and how they contributed to a feeling almost of loneliness. It came across to me very strongly in your piece when you speak about the wanting to have, when you decided you wanted to have children and that there was this disturbing sense that for a feminist, there was something not quite correct about yearning for a child, much less one gestated in my own body. And one of the possible side effects of PCOS is infertility or difficulty conceiving. And you speak about this really beautifully in your piece um, about the challenges, the sadness of not being able to conceive and then also the onset of early menopause where you say, Feminist analysis of the gendered systems of medical care has been and continues to be invaluable. It transforms and saves lives. The passionate fight for reproductive health care and freedom, freedom to make sexual choices, access to contraception and safe abortions, these have always been sites of committed work and advance and counterfeit by feminists. But as part of these movements, I had hoped for reciprocity. I naively assumed that the pain caused by the shortfall between the overwhelming need to reproduce my own DNA and the non-functioning of my reproductive organs, a fate I share with millions of others, would receive formal feminist attention. I'm wondering why you think there is this absence of literature around this and whether you've, it's still the case or whether since publishing this you've had anyone point anything out to you that might be useful to other listeners. There was part of me that hoped that I'd write this essay and I'd immediately get, you know, sort of half a dozen or dozens of DMs saying, you haven't read X or are you not aware of Y? Crickets, nothing. You know, and there, there is some material and I talk about it in my piece. I don't want to sort of go over it. I mean, Christiane Northrop does write from a sort of a very broad, what I think of a spiritual feminist. It's very Western. It's very middle class. But it is very much about sort of like the power of um, of, of the feminine's uh, uh, sort of discourse, etc. So there is some work, and she writes about menopause. And years ago, back in 1984, the great sort of doyen of midwifery, feminist doyen of midwifery, Sheila Kitzinger, um, was one of the only people I ever came across who wrote about how to enjoy sexual pleasure if you were a person with disabilities or if you were, for example, 
you felt that your body had been altered by a mastectomy or um, other sensitive surgeries. And she talked about how, you know, the, the, the need for um, allies and um, supportive and compassionate um, healthcare providers for that. And I was like, oh my goodness, you know, sort of, you know, in those days, I didn't even say, um, you know, people who needed wheelchairs. I would say, oh, my God, she's telling wheelchairs how to have orgasms. You know, this is both amazing and incredible, but who would have thought it? And I'm looking back now to 1984. And what has changed? To go back to your question about the feminist reading, I mean, I have... Uh, I can't say I've seen much. Um, there is part of it is, is 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 a filtering process. There is masses of information on, for example, endometriosis, on PCOS, on miscarriage. There is there is a truckload of information on every single one of those topics you listed right at the beginning: miscarriage, stillbirth, um, infertility, etc. But they're they're all about communities. They're not necessarily about feminism. And I found that I used to enter those spaces and I would immediately go, well, this is an issue around gender. This is an issue about access. This is an issue about um, the gendering of healthcare. This is an issue. These are issues of power. But that was where the silencing started because you would be part of a community with somebody saying at the same time, I really prayed to the Lord to help me sort of come to terms with this. Um, and my husband is so supportive. And of course, you know, I follow Romans, whatever, and he is the head of our household. And he's been really sort of good about sort of this. And we're talking through these options. And these are women in pain. And you don't want to say to them, um, may I point out a few little anomalies here? And also the other thing was, is that people would report the most appallingly sex behavior by their healthcare providers. And that's not a relationship you can interrupt with. I got unfriended by somebody, and not just unfriended, blocked by a friend of 16 years because I insist that women have a conversation with their healthcare providers about HRT. You see people making really, really um, reckless statements in these forums on stillbirth or miscarriage or, 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 or saying things like, you know, the Lord will send you another child when the time is right or this child was never meant to be born. And I'm like, um, I can't really wade in as a feminist. And you know what it is? These issues are unbelievably painful. And feminism means talking about our pain, yes, but it means taking, you know, the old slogan, you know, the personal is political. We look at the politics and the power dynamics and the intersectionality of our feminism. But sometimes feminism comes to a place where you're just dealing with someone in terrible, terrible pain. Um, they've lost a child. They've lost all the children they're ever going to have, which was what I felt, you know, I was like, how can I possibly grieve, you know, when people have had miscarriages, when people have lost living flesh and blood children. And it wasn't until somebody said to me, you're allowed to grieve for all of the children you didn't have that you wanted to have. Um, and then also there's something 
about, and I'm sure this is gendered as well, there's something about that desire to reproduce your own DNA. The amount of times I have nearly committed murder because people have said to me, well, what about adoption? I'm like, no, you do not understand. Yes, if I wanted to be a parent, personally, I think adoption is an incredibly wise, resourceful, loving option. It is also, and I mean, I speak as an environmental activist, it's just about the single greenest thing you can do is to choose to adopt instead of reproduce your own DNA. But what I dealt with, and it's the strongest feeling I've ever had in my life, was this appalling biological, well, you see, even I'm, I'm using judgmental language, but I should say, intense as opposed to appalling the most intense desire to reproduce myself and one of my doctors said to me helen even amoebas have that urge it is the most basic primeval physiological urge some people don't have it some people do i just happen to have it incredibly intensely and because it's such a biological urge. Uh, it's so primal. It's so primary. It's so um, all-encompassing. It's like being hungry all the time. Uh, you never get used to it. You literally, you, you, you walk up. I used to pace up and down, literally. This feeling would chase me up and down. I remember walking up and down the passage on the flat that I lived in thinking, can I not get this hunger out of my system? Can I not get it off my back? And there was no, uh, no um, relief or help or support to be had from my expected feminist intellectual and academic networks. Friends who also happened to be feminists were you know, very supportive. But every single time I tried to talk about this in public, I would get the feeling that this was not a, an issue that was worthy of feminist attention. So I never got to talk about within that particular space about what this particular hunger felt like. And I think that that's why when I was writing this essay, an enormous amount of loneliness came out. Maybe I should have broken the silence. Maybe I should have been braver. Uh, maybe I was just a super wimp. But, you know, I, I went through my 30s going to baby showers and coming home absolutely shattered, broken, you know, distressed to, 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 to an extent that used to shock me. And I didn't know where it was coming from. And I had counseling and I had therapy and I had the world's best gynecologist who understood exactly how I felt. I had all of the support networks. I had a medical aid. And I was still haunted by this for years. Yeah, it was a very, very lonely experience. And I think I'm writing about it now because I don't want other young people in my position to think that they're alone or think that they're weird or think that they're wrong for having this wish, this desire, this urge to replicate their own DNA. A hugely powerful um, analogy that you gave around being hungry and I think everybody can understand that so whether someone is listening to this and they have that that same feeling of urgency to have a biological child 
or not, they can understand that when you don't get that and a particular need that is that deep fulfilled, that it must be extremely painful. I think one podcast that I listen to quite regularly now is the How to Fail podcast. And the host, Elizabeth Day, has had several miscarriages. And really, the way that she expresses herself, it sounds similar to what you're describing. She really wants to have her own child. And you can hear when she's speaking that it is something that is still a real living absence, you know, rather than a presence, an absence that she feels strongly. And I think it's her work is so important for exactly what you say, that people understand that there's nothing wrong with you for wanting a child. There's nothing wrong with you for not wanting a child. And I think it's really sad that feminism has done so much for women who have decided they don't want to have children and helping people respect that decision, but perhaps that they haven't done enough for those who do and who whose desire is unmet. So thank you for being so honest and for sharing how that felt. And hopefully many people listening will gain some support from that. One of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about was, again, around taboos, around desire. And in your piece, you have a section called Desire and the Dysfunctional Body, where you describe the difficulties that PCOS presented you with and how it affected your desire. And you also speak about the idea of continence, which I must admit was the first time that I'd heard it used in that way, which when you look it up, it's the idea of self-restraint with regards to sex and how tricky it can be in relationships where there is a disparate desire for sexual activity, where someone wants it a lot and someone wants it not at all. And then you say, rightly, I think, here I'm describing the human condition. All sexuality is fraught and complex because sexual expression is so profoundly rooted in the body. The health of the body is critical in determining what kind of sexual expression we'll enjoy during our lifetimes. So can you tell me a bit more why I thought it was important to include this discussion of continence in your broader piece? I very nearly didn't include that. I put a line through that section so, so many times. But because it's been a point of contention or discussion or debate or fruitful kind of like um, sparking off of ideas with younger feminists that, um, you know, where there has been, there have been differences and political differences. Um, I, you know, sort of, I grew up in an era before internet dating. Um, please. I mean, I'm, I grew up before the internet. And so, of course, things like Tinder and I think Bubble and um, uh, uh, online dating and apps that match you with people is sort of culturally outside of my context. It's it's part of that whole thing of being a digital immigrant. You know, Eleanor Sisulu has this wonderful definition of there's a difference between digital natives and digital immigrants, and never, ever, ever will that divide be completely bridged. And digital natives are people who have always grown up, who cannot, who have never lived without the internet and never lived without cell phones. And digital immigrants are those who uh, remember a time before both. So one of the things that I think that this technological sort of leap forward has made it possible, along with rights-based movements, um, has been a wonderful blossoming and flowering of our rights to pleasure, our rights to explore the kind of sexuality we want, to um, enjoy hookup culture, to include whatever our particular, or I don't want to do that particular thing. Sorry, you know, sort of um, all I can think of with chocolate sauce and whipped creams is um, 
that this will be hell on the laundry. Um, so you think all of those, you know, what happens when this is what you want to do and your partner says no, but you're not necessarily in a um, polyamorous relationship. What if you're in a monogamous relationship? And I found that I was hearing the same almost archetypal narratives from my younger friends over and over again. We had such a great evening together. The sex was fantastic. But he hasn't called and he's swerving my calls because, of course, no one sits around waiting for a call anymore. And he says he has to stay in and wash his hair. And I thought we had such a good connection. And um, I thought the sex was great. He didn't think it was so great. And I was like, oh, you know, sort of, I might as well be 23 again. These are the same conversations I was having. And I realized that we needed to talk more about disparities of desire, the fact that we are all different. And especially in relationships, um, and especially where people have negotiated partnerships or marriages that are monogamous or are serially monogamous, which is what a lot of people still want, then how are you going to talk about disparities in desire if you haven't learned continence? And it's one of the things we're leaving out, I believe, of sex education messages. Or, you know, there's that old sort of like, even if you're only going to be seeing them for two hours that evening, you've still got to be very frank. You've still got to be honest. You're still presumably having the conversations about safer sex. So you have to be able to say, well, I'm comfortable doing this, but not that. Or in my particular case, and women with PCOS, I should say, rather, um, what happens when you actually have a complete and utter failure of desire? You know you want sex again at some stage in the future. The person who wants sex with you is still somebody you find immensely sexually desirable and attractive. But right at that particular moment, you want to lie on your bed with a hot water bottle on your knees up to your chest and rock. Or you might be feeling absolutely physically fine, but you'd rather literally sort of like tear off your hand and eat it than um, get naked with somebody at that moment, even when that's somebody you love and normally find desirable. So we're not, the only way to deal with those situations, um, unless you have the kind of relationship where, you know, sort of, Sweetie, I'd really like to have um, about half an hour of spanking followed by a, another half an hour of mutual masturbation. What do you say? Absolutely not. Go away. I am not in the mood. Fine. Do you mind if I hop onto Tinder and see if there's anybody who's willing to kind of um, meet my particular needs? And I suppose I'm speaking flippantly and, I'm, and I apologize if I'm offending anybody or sort of sounding as if I'm trying to shame anybody. But unless you have that sort of relationship, and I think the truth is that that sort of relationship is quite rare, then you need to be able to learn to say, oh, okay, is there something else I can do for you emotionally right now? And not just because I want to have sex, you know, is there something going on in our relationship we need to talk about? Or is it that you're just physically not in the mood or you are in the mood, but it just hurts too much. And I mean, PCOS women are still okay. It's the ones with endometriosis that my heart goes out to because this 
the, 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 there are two major um, symptoms of endometriosis, and one is exceptionally painful periods, but the other one is exceptional pain during penetrative sex. And worse, even um, non-penetrative sex, simple, you know, simply having an orgasm can trigger acute cramping and pain in women with endometriosis. So what happens if you want to have an orgasm, but you know it's going to cost you this physical pain? And talking about continence and taking it outside of the whole Judeo-Christian morality thing, you know, taking it away from narratives about purity and um, abstinence, we're not having those conversations, and I think we need to have them because much later on in our lives, you know, sort of we may be married to somebody who's recently had a surgery for prostate cancer or a mastectomy or something that affects the way they feel about their body and their sexuality, something that feels intimate and painful, and they may not want to be sexual with us in the ways that we choose, but they may not want us to be sexual with other people either. And when, by the time you're 40, you need to have this in your quiver of life skills of like, okay, I'm just going to have to sit on it or take care of myself, you know, get out, break out the vibrator for the next six weeks or whatever. So we need to be having those conversations as well. For me, it's about life skills and emotional intelligence, as well as sexual expression and desire and pleasure. So much of feminism has been about talking to women about their sexual desire in a way that frames it around consent. And I think in South Africa, we have a really violent culture of rape and rape culture is really common. The, the narrative tends to focus on, you know, if you've, if protecting yourself from some sort of violence, but it doesn't exactly discuss how to negotiate. Okay, well, you're super into X, Y, and Z, and I'm really not. So how do we discuss what might be mutually beneficial? And the other thing that I think was really important is that feminism has done so much for talking about this myth of this uncontrollable desire of men, um, but it hasn't done the same in talking about you know, what you described, there's a sort of failures of desire or not feeling like you're up to it. And with things like psychological health, you know, your your menstrual cycle can affect your levels of libido and all of those things are just so important. And I think it is really valuable to have introduced the idea in this collection around what happens when there is this divergence. Um, yeah, I listened to a very helpful podcast the other day by... Uh, I think she's sort of she calls herself a sexologist and it was like like this they talk of the five love languages there were the five sexual personalities and then having that discussion around those different personalities is very helpful because it allows you and your partner to talk a little almost like when you've got a difficult discussion and you you recommend a book <laughs> it's one of those things where they exist separate from you and so you can talk about them openly um but enough, okay, I want to I want to stop talking about your piece for a second because I'm very excited about your book. You are such a prolific writer in so many various forms, a poet, an editor in demand, and now you've written your first novel. So can you tell me a bit about your first novel, Charlotte? You know, for those who don't know what it's about and, and what the experience has been like for you. And thank you for asking about my adored Charlotte. Um, Charlotte tells the story of, Charlotte Lucas. It's a Pride and Prejudice sequel. And in Pride and Prejudice, we've got the gay, witty, sparkling, um, brilliant, beautiful Elizabeth Bennet, who's one of the most appealing and well-known heroines in the Western canon. And she has this older, plain, poor best friend, Charlotte Lucas. 
And in Pride and Prejudice, Charlotte makes a marriage that looks to be extremely unwise. She marries this fawning, um, snobbish, um, uh, 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 money-obsessed clergyman. And she ups on, 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 on the basis of about three days' acquaintance, and she upsticks and leaves her family and goes off to make a home for him. And in the novel, Elizabeth Bennet is shocked by her friend's moral choice. But I think partly being a South African, and therefore I think much more cued into stratas of society in which there is real pressure for women to marry for reasons of financial security and also because of family obligation. I identified um, with Charlotte's plight. She didn't have a choice. It was that or literally live in near starvation poverty, you know, um, you know, middle-class shabby uh, genteel poverty, as in she'd have a roof over her head, but her father, who had very little money, would have to support her until he died, and then her brothers would have to find, you know, put a roof over her head and food on her table, and she'd have to spend her whole life being grateful for the crumbs from the table, and now she had this chance of a decent, proper, middle-class um, home where she would be the mistress, she would have status, she would have honour, she would be the boss of her household. And I wanted, but I liked her so much. I liked her gumption. I wanted to know what happened to her. I've always wondered if she had, if she actually found a way to be happy. And then it's occurred to me that I could actually tell that story. So I did. And it's, it turned into a feminist novel. Um, and what my publisher calls a subtle feminist novel. So it's kind of, given that I'm usually ranting or being anything but subtle as an activist and as an academic feminist, it was quite nice to be told that I was now a, a subtle feminist novelist. So yes, she launched, she was supposed to launch on the 14th of May, and you know what this feels like, COVID ate my book. Um, so we had a very kind of like damp squib launch of the book as an ebook and as an audible book. And the print copy arrives in South Africa on the 3rd of September, and we're going to have a virtual launch. You know what those are like, too. It was all a dream come true. But as you know, the path of true love has got nothing on the path of true publishing, never running smooth. You know, I really thought I was 11, you know, I, I was literally seeing the finish line ahead of me, you know, international publication, two books deal, you know, respectable sort of midlist British publisher. Um, I was getting fabulous traction. I mean, in the months up to the 14th of May, um, I was featured in The Guardian and in Stylist magazine, and I was supposed to be in Times Literary Supplement. <laughs> then along came a pandemic and ate it all. You know, it all just disappeared, disappeared into smoke and mist. But the point is, is that I've got this wonderful book out. And when I say wonderful, I mean I thoroughly enjoyed writing it. It was a labor of love. I don't even care if people don't like it. But the lovely thing is that the people who have read it so far have almost all enjoyed it. And I've had so many lovely notes saying it's the perfect pandemic read. And I suppose it is, because you escape into 1817 in Kent and Derbyshire. And um, it's a lovely place to visit for a while um, until you reemerge into our rather grim current reality.
Um, so, Helen, for those listeners who probably have not read Pride and Prejudice, um, do you think that they should read that first, or can they read your book as a standalone? I deliberately wrote it so that you can read it as a standalone. You might enjoy it more if you read Pride and Prejudice more. Certainly, you'll pick up a lot of the, 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 the subtle clues. But actually, you just need to have read Longbourn. There are five Longbourn Easter eggs that I hid in the text with the permission of Joe Baker, who wrote what I think is the best Pride and Prejudice sequel, which is kind of like the, the story of Pride and Prejudice, but told from the perspective of the servants in the household. I just love that sort of literature. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you've read Longbourn, if you've watched the BBC TV series, if you've watched any of the movies, um, in particular the Kira Knightley one, you will get a little bit more, but I deliberately put it that you do not have to have read Pride and Prejudice to enjoy this book. I fill in all of the backstory. Why do you think that this was a story that stuck with you so much over the years? You know, I just had to answer this for a... Um, a British magazine. And once again, it's got something to do with being South African and my generation. You know, mine was like, was just about the last generation in South Africa that literally had to choose between marriage and career. You know, the, the message very clearly coming, up, coming to us as we were growing up as girls was, you couldn't have both. And so there was something about when, when I read of Charlotte Lucas's story and I saw how scornful Lizzie Bennett was that this woman would marry a man she'd known only for a few days and marry him on the spot. And, you know, she, she, she got engaged, so no trousseau, and she was off. Um, and she knew nothing about him. Um, you know, it could have gone horribly wrong. And there was something about that people sitting in jail. I thought, what? other choices did this woman have she showed some agency she showed some gumption she saw that this man was going begging that he was looking for a wife and she pounced you know and she kind of like said well hello there and i grew up at an era where women did precisely that i went to a good christian national edu educational all white um mixed uh, gender school in Somerset West um, in the 70s. And I knew so many girls like Charlotte, you know, that you went out into the world to get a ring on your finger, to get a roof over your head, and that was how you got financial security. You know, you didn't go to university. Nobody wasted money educating girls. And remember that I was white and middle class and privileged, and yet... Um, the, you know, sort of, I would say the majority of the women in, for example, my matric home economics class did not go to university and would no more have thought of going to university and getting an education and getting a career than flying to the moon. And I worried about the vulnerability of those women. I worried about um, the fact that this wasn't a free option. It wasn't that they were all lolling around thinking, oh, I don't feel like soiling my little fingers to the bone. I don't feel like working. Um, I know how much I had to struggle to go to university. I was a, my parents were incredibly supportive about my university career as long as I was an undergraduate. The minute I wanted to go on and do postgraduate studies, my father really kicked up because what was the point of educating a woman at a postgraduate level when I was going to get married and have babies? Little did we know. I, I'm just old enough to remember when women really got that kind of pressure. And Jen, don't tell me it's gone away. 
Um, this thing of we class has hidden to us the extent to which women around the world, um, for many of them, for millions upon millions of them, a career is a pipe dream. They are born to run some man's household and have his babies. And that's the message they get from the minute they hit puberty. And I mean, it was very interesting. The Zimbabwean writer Patina Gapper um, says that she reads Jane Austen and all of the all of these 19th century events for her, she can literally hear them going on in villages in Zimbabwe. You know, I do not know who is going to care for you, you know, sort of um, after your husband has died, if you take it in your head to go on refusing all your suitors this way, Miss Elizabeth. It still rings bells for me. And that's why I wanted to explore this issue. I wanted to say, can a woman still have agency? Can she still have power? Can she still have a satisfactory life? And I gave Charlotte all of those things. Feminist analysis is so important for this reason, is that we can't assume what any person's story means. There's obvious broad social constructs around access to education and employment, that uh, those type of decisions mean certain things for certain women but because not all women are the same it is important to analyze their stories i think it's it's really wonderful to be able to show that through a story that there's no matter what your circumstances there are still choices and that sometimes decisions do that you know would be frowned upon by sort of a more conservative feminist grouping might actually be sensible decisions for livelihoods and in your piece, one last thing about that was at the discussion of witches and crones, which make, which made me smile very much, as did all the cooking. I was very hungry at the end. And I wonder whether you identify with the term witch or crone and what that means to you. I embraced the term witch a good 10 years ago, and I'm increasingly, especially now that I've had COVID long haul or got still got COVID long haul, which is an incredibly aging condition. Um, you know, you literally wake up old and cranky and sore um, and everything, everything is falling apart um, more or less overnight. So I'm, I've, so it's forcing me to embrace my inner and my outer crone. Um, but yeah, I like the idea of reclaiming those labels. I like the, I, I like what, what, what feminism has done with those labels. Um, I like it. I find it a far more subversive and powerful way of reclaiming what, I, and I quote her in my essay, what Lyndall Gordon calls domestic feminism, whereby you literally take the domestic arts and you invest them with the power and the agency and the pleasure that gives you personal satisfaction and gives your life meaning and also enables you to make meaningful contributions to the lives of others. And I was just talking to, now that we're allowed visitors, and also because I'm in the wonderful, rare position where apparently the only thing they know about this illness, the only thing they can tell me for 100% sure, I can't infect anybody else. I've got immunity from infecting other people. So. I've got this wonderful window when the rest of us all have to sort of shelter in place and self-isolate. I can have visitors. So somebody came to visit me and we were talking about the fact that people have learned all over again how to bake bread. You know, and you've got people who are sort of in love with their sourdough starters. People have revisited things, skills like mending, knitting, crocheting. 
But much more important, and I think that this has always been true of marginal and impoverished communities in South Africa, sharing and tending of, uh, uh, each other, sharing of common goods, sharing of food, bartering um, has come back. Um, we were talking about how as middle class women, we'd been so used to handing over our credit card. And now she's um, a beautician and she swapped a beauty treatment for a hair, you know, for a hair treatment with her hairdresser, which sounds like a very luxurious form of barter. But the point is, is that we're learning and relearning those skills. And I like the idea of being a witch because it encompasses all of that ancient wisdom that's been stripped. If you, if you think about it, being a witch is by definition being anti-capitalist. It means mend and make do. It means make your own food, grow your own veggies, um, brew your own home remedies. Um, I swear by ginger tea for absolutely everything. Um, make, make a vast pot of soup and share it with your neighbor. Um, make, um, you know, sort of plant out a whole lot of, take the fennel seeds that you bought for your curry sprout them, plant them out, give your friends fennel plants. Um, all of that sort of disrupts um, this whole thing of let me rush down to the mall with my credit card, buy something, it breaks five minutes later, or I lose five interest in it five minutes later, um, chuck it onto the vast heap of uh, garbage that we're creating. So I like being a witch because I think it's an, I think it's a green way of living. I think it's an empowering way of living. I think it's particularly um, important way of living and modeling behavior for children, the next generation. And um, I am still exploring what it means to be a crone. So the next, when in your next feminism is book, um, Jen, I'll, you know, sort of, um, I'll, I'll, write, I'll write you a piece all about what it means to be a crone. I look forward to that. Do you have a favorite witch in literature? I'm going to make everybody laugh by... Um, <laughs> By saying I do, it's Granny Weatherwax. Oh, I love Granny Weatherwax. She is the ultimate. Just to end off three quick questions. Uh, what is a book that has inspired your feminism? A recent book that didn't so much inspire my feminism because my feminism was inspired 30 years ago or 40 years ago. But a book that gave me the strength and the courage to keep on going is Pumla Deneo Paula's Rape a South African Nightmare. It sounds like a terrible title. It looks a terrifying and intimidating book, but she writes with such grace and sparkle and determination to take an absolutely awful and persistent and poisonous social problem that affects every single woman and probably every single man in this country. And she just is so solution oriented and her analysis is just so skillful. And and then I, it just, it kind of made me feel, I know this sounds weird, a book on rape made me feel hopeful that we could eventually crack this demon, that we could crack this problem, we could solve this problem. So I really recommend that um, for every despairing, tired, older feminist, for every bright-eyed, bushy-tailed younger woman who's um, banging her head against brick walls and not knowing where to turn, I recommend reading that book. Do you have a quote that inspires you or that you live by? 
I know it's a cliche, but I quote Henry James at this point. He says there are three rules for living. Number one, be kind. Number two, be kind. Number three, be kind. And what is your advice for other feminists on their journey? Just don't ever give up. Mm. Um, you know, you said something in your opening essay of Living Wild Feminist about the joy of feminism. And, you know, I mentioned very early on that panel at Kingsmead where we were all exhausted and Angelo Fick was chairing the panel and he did such a beautiful job. He said, what about feminism gives you pleasure? And we all perked up and it turned into, a lot of people said afterwards, it was the best panel of the entire festival. But we all just got so enthused. There were so many elements of feminism that do give pleasure and do give joy. Don't ever forget that. I know it's that it's that ghastly thing of what you know Joan Byers calls little victories and big defeats the whole time. But uh, there's tremendous pleasure and joy, and don't ever ever stop plugging into that. That's your cell phone battery charger. Just plug into the pleasure and joy of feminism. I mean, we had a launch um, for or Living While Feminist with CNA recently, and we had such a long discussion about feminist joy, and I ended up feeling more hopeful and optimistic than I felt in a long time. So I think you're 100% right that kindness and feminist joy are going to save the world. So thank you so much, Helen, for taking your time today to talk to me and help other listeners explore some of these issues. Congratulations on your book, even though it has been a, a weird time for it to come out. I'm sure it would be very successful. And thank you again for your time. Thank you, Jen. And congratulations on your absolutely beautiful book. You can find out more about Helen via her website, helenmoffat.com, and get your copy of Charlotte, now available in all good bookstores. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.